Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today is July 11th, 2019. In recent months, Academy has stayed on top of the topic of Iran and the instability that continues to mount in that region. This week, the United Kingdom's Royal Navy had to intervene between UK merchant British petroleum ships and naval vessels from the Iranian military. This morning, we got on the phone with our generals to discuss a few other topics related to the situation in Iran. Today's new content includes a discussion about the possible Iranian response to United States naval and air superiority and activity in that area. We discuss that Iran may decide to react asymmetrically, and instead of directly against the United States and our allies, Iran may act out in other locations within the region. We also discuss possible Israeli response and the concern that is there. Finally, we also discuss the strength of Iran's military, the IRGC. Along with conversations we had this morning, I'd like to point out a few of the geopolitical pieces that Academy Securities has produced. Just last week when Iran announced their intention to exceed uranium limits, we did a podcast with Major General James Spider Marks, and I've included that audio portion in this podcast episode as well. On June 20th, Iran shot down a United States drone. Our geopolitical experts had heavy media presence, and we provided written commentary as well on that topic. And then on June 13th, several tankers were attacked in the Straits of Hormuz and Gulf of Oman. On June 13th, several tankers had been attacked in the Straits of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman. We put together a written piece with Generals Walsh and General Kearney to discuss this topic. And then on April 23rd, President Trump announced that he would uphold sanctions against Iran and denied several countries from receiving waivers from those sanctions. We produced a podcast with Brigadier General Tony Tata, which also discussed Iran's cyber capabilities. I've included that portion in this podcast as well. Academy Securities will continue to serve as your primary source for geopolitical and macro news and analysis. Please let us know what other questions you may have by emailing us at info at academysecurities.com. Now, here's the conversation we had this morning. General Kearney, what type of action might the United States continue to have or take in that area, whether it's naval air power or actual land forces? And what would Iran's response be to that sort of escalation? Um, most of this is naval and air, uh, cyber and, and other stuff. I mean, this is not a big land force kind of uh, issue here. But that's not how the Iranians will respond. They will they will take take this to us in uh, semi-deniable IRGC, Quds Force, and other capabilities kind of things around the regions to put pressure on everybody. So they, I mean, they're actually using what I think that the Russians are using. They're 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 using escalate to de-escalate as their the kind of strategy right now is take it up, see where they want to go, uh, so that we can get to the bargaining table and, and not have to yield so many uh, things that we want to do in the region. Much like your articles that came out today uh, that you sent out said. Okay, that makes sense. Um, kind of on the back of two things that you just said, though. One is, any thoughts on where Israel stands? Like, is there some risk that Israel kind of preemptively becomes aggressive? Um, look, they, they've got their options set, too. And I think, you know, the United States is doing what it can to hold them in abeyance, absent 
some critical uh, move uh, in, you know, I'm thinking Hezbollah. I mean, if, if Israel comes under attack by Hezbollah, uh, I mean, significant, you're going to see uh, a response not just limited to Lebanon, but including Iran. But in the meantime, I think uh, the United States is urging them to keep their powder dry. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I think Israel will defend its own interests. They will share the information at, with the United States uh, at the appropriate time, because even as, as great allies that, as they are, they retain uh, tactical and strategic surprise because of the distances they have. But they have a limited capability to do that. Yeah. Okay, so their ability to uh, inflict any damage on, uh, on the nuclear program, their, their oil assets or things like that are, are difficult. They will normally go after things that present a direct threat uh, to Israel. Um, and, and, and kind of punish them back. Uh, and, and they're normally, they, they don't, my experience with them, and you can jump in, Dave, is that Israel doesn't believe in the proportionality rule. They believe in, hey, if you hit me, I'm, you know, they're almost Trump-like, and you know, I'm going to hit you back harder. Um, you know, his, word, his are with words. Uh, of course, Israel is with action. They, they get after it. So um, that, that's where you get into this un, unintended set of consequences that could trigger something that we're not ready for. And so I think Dave's right on the money. This, this relationship we've got with Israel is, is as much trying to keep them constrained to do things so we can achieve the intended outcome uh, on the nuclear program and, and hegemony in the region. But they are a wild card. And uh, anybody who thinks other than that in our government, just uh, know them as well as they should. Okay, that, that's very helpful. One other question I have kind of before we jump back to something else. Um, so is the Iranian military any good? Like I, one of the things, and Brett mentioned this yesterday, I think there's almost this, I think, perception that the Iranian military is very weak and it, you know, would look a lot like the Second Gulf War. And maybe that's why people are complacent. I don't know if that's an accurate assessment. I think it's how people think. And I just don't know whether they're thinking about that right or not. You've got to be careful. They're certainly not 10 feet tall. I mean, they are a third-rate military power, and we could crush them like a bug, okay? Now, I say that in the context uh, absent any political context, but you can't, you can't evaluate militaries or their actions without the political context. So it, it, it is, look, they're, they're operating crummy equipment, but it's also, um, you know, the, the, the shoot down of the Global Hawk is, is a good example. It, it's certainly good enough to handle those kinds of undefended systems. And so... It's not that they're not capable, but it's got to be put in context. The United States and clearly the Europeans, nobody wants to see major configuration in the Gulf. If that happened, they could be crushed. They could be crushed very, very quick. Um, but we don't want to see that play out. Clearly, they're clever uh, and can act uh, in, a way, in, in ways uh, that, you know, get into the whole discussion of gray zone operations. But those are really irritants, uh, not definitive military capability. So that's my take on it. Yeah, I, I think uh, we're absolutely right. Their actual military forces that are not IRGC are extraordinarily weak. I mean, they have very limited power projection capability, except through the IRGC, and the IRGC holds all the strategic missiles and those kind of things. Their air defense system is, uh, is a threat. I mean, obviously, as Dave said, they shot down a global hawk. We would lose platforms doing this, and they will attack shipping, uh, our shipping, you know, our, our naval vessels plus 
anything else that's in there. They do have missile capability to be able to do that, and they do have air defense capability to do those things. And that's where the American losses or alliance losses would be while they use asymmetrical operations to to achieve political outcomes and try to break apart a coalition. I mean, you know, it would be interesting, and I think I made some comments to Rachel yesterday, on uh, what response they would have to the U.K., given, you know, they're apparently not exactly escorting, uh, you know, British petroleum tankers or flag, you know, British Commonwealth kind of tankers through there, but they are present and able to do that. Uh, I mean, that just adds to the uh, to the ability to kind of have this go out of control really quickly. But the relationship between the United States and U.K., our best ally right now, isn't the best. And it would be interesting to see what kind of pressure that would be putting on the relationship, which, you know, is where the Iranians are. They're trying to put pressure on the Europeans to put pressure on us to get rid of some of these sanctions. Um, but you know, it's, their, their capability is very limited except in the region. Uh, but they, the, the biggest threat is, is, is to, to our naval and air capability. Here's a recording from the podcast we produced on July 5th with Major General James Spidermarks. This past week, Iran announced that they had exceeded uranium enrichment levels uh, that were prescribed in the JCPOA. We're seeing Israel um, claim that they are in a very defensive posture, expecting military aggression from Iran in the near future. Uh, we see more troops and equipment movements to the uh, to the region by the U.S. military. What is your view on escalating rhetoric? Um, and potential rising tensions. I think what we're seeing in that part of the world, uh, especially in terms of Iran's very boisterous, very virulent uh, voice that you routinely hear, is that sanctions are working. That's the bottom line. There is a tremendous amount of pain that the mullahs are feeling in Tehran, and uh, the United States should be applauded for its vigilance leading this international coalition to really make the Iranian regime suffer. Now, the inevitable question then becomes, to what effect? What is the United States? What are the international partners that are still holding fast? What is the desired end state here? I think for the most part, it's not regime change. I mean, you may hear our national security advisor talk about changing out that, uh, you know, the heinous regime that's existed in Tehran for over 30 years. But the real issue is we've got to modify. This is all about nukes. We've got to modify the behavior of the Iranian regime in terms of its desire to achieve a nuclear capability and to keep it completely within accepted norms of inspections and global community engagement, IAEA certifications, etc. Clearly, this effort by the administration of maximum pressure is working. It is inarguable that it is achieving a result that is applying a level of pain to the regime that has not been seen before. Added on top of that, the fact the United States has come forward and designated the IRGC as a terrorist organization. Normally, state organizations are not designated terrorist organizations, and the IRGC is, because essentially the IRGC is an all-of-government agency. It exists in their economic system, it exists in their, in their mosques, it exists in their government, it exists in their military, it exists in their educational system, it exists in their trade policies, it exists in their regional outreach, etc. So this is an incredibly uh, very broad 
almost ecumenical designation by the United States at the IRGC is an incredibly bad actor. That is to say, Iran, you across the board are a bad actor and we're everything that follows as a result of the designation of Iran as a terrorist state is extremely painful. So the Iranians now are being very, very boisterous because they're feeling the pain and they're going to react. It's like when you push you push a balloon, it's you know, it'll indent at one location and it'll expand at another. So there has to be on the part of the United States and international partners the inevitable asymmetric response that's going to occur. Well, that's what's happened with a couple of tankers. A few tankers have been attacked in the Straits of Hormuz. They shot down a U.S. drone. Those moves are not surprising at all, and we can expect more of those coming up. But the Iranian regime is almost trying to stick a gun to the head of the international community and say, look, the Jikpoa paid us billions of dollars so that we could produce nukes on some schedule that we were going to, uh, you know, eliminate and skirt around the rules anyway. So now the international community, or at least the United States, has said, okay, we're not going to pay you money to produce nukes. We're going to try to strangle you economically and see how that allows you to produce nukes. So the consequence of that is now Iran is saying we're producing, we're enriching uranium at a faster clip than we have before. That, again, should not be surprising. So the United States has to be able to keep the international community, and I'm assuming that that international community is going to hold fast based on Iranian bad behavior. I could be proven wrong, but history tells us that economic sanctions usually do not achieve the intended result. These sanctions are moving in the direction of achieving an intended result of, cause, of causing an enormous amount of pain economically to the regime in Tehran that will be felt down into the population within Iran, which could then cause challenges with governance in Tehran that if it results in regime change, that is a stretch and that's not on the agenda in my mind. But what is, is direct causal behavior that reduces their ability to produce enriched uranium and get closer to their desired end state of having a nuclear capability, as well as developing the missiles to deliver those. And what's interesting, the upside of all of this is the Iranian Iranian regime supports activities in Pyongyang with about $2 billion or so a year. My numbers may be wrong, but that linkage is known and is clear. And so the pressure that's being felt in Tehran has the benefit of of providing pressure and increasing the sanction results in Pyongyang as well. So there's no activity that's taking place that's not in some way uh, causally linked, uh, both on the peninsula in Korea and in the Middle East. Israel's preparation is not surprising at all. Israel is concerned since they have no time, they have no space that they can afford to give up if they get it wrong. So Israel always maintains an incredible heightened state of military preparedness for what could be a zero warning type of a, type of an engagement, which means short fuse on indicators puts Israel at risk. Israel has to be in a position to respond instantaneously. 
that's a general kind of 24-7 state of affairs in Israel, but the United States uh, deployment of additional assets enhances Israel's ability to be able to withstand a blow and to respond in a way that does not put them at risk. So I, that's, that's how I see what's taking place right now in that part of the world. Back to you. Thanks, Ryder. Again, that was a great overview of what's going on there. I think the market is finally starting to realize that the risk of escalation is higher than people thought, whether it's a misstep or a purposeful you know, pushing of the envelope by the Iranians, that risk seems real. Um, you know, the fact that Israel may have to act, you know, not preemptively, but certainly to protect themselves aggressively is starting to be felt in the market. I think what we're going to see is, for now, that continues to help Treasury yields. So the Treasury market's going to remain pretty well bid as a flight to safety trade is kind of there. Having said that, with the 10-year Treasury already around 1.95% yield, it doesn't have a lot to gain from that. Weirdly, and I think it actually does make sense, so it is a bit strange, equity markets, I think, are a little bit immune to this. On Tuesday of this week, we saw some announcements about uh, the vice president canceling an event. We saw the Israeli headlines hit, and the stock market sold off briefly, but then rebounded. And I think unless this is going to become a very, you know, big war across multiple nations, it is really viewed as mostly impacting the oil markets and not really getting above and beyond that. And so it's not really disrupting global trade. Um, so much of the markets right now are viewed, are being uh, priced by central banks that are very aggressive in terms of their dovishness, which is allowing markets to ignore this. I think we're going to see stocks continue to do well. We've been recommending to clients to be, be buying energy stocks and energy bonds. We think they're already kind of lagged the market, so there's a chance to outperform. And if we do get this escalation, many of those companies should be profiting from this. Also starting to take a look at aerospace and defense names who may benefit depending on how this um, escalation plays out, what the equipment is used, what will need to be replaced. So I think there's going to be opportunities for the market in this. Um, and I am not particularly scared that it's going to have a big overall impact on the market. I think it will remain a relatively isolated event. And here's a recording that we produced on April 23rd featuring Brigadier General Tony Peta. General Peta, can you discuss the Trump administration's decision to no longer offer waivers to countries that wish to buy Iranian oil? How is this going to impact our partners and allies that do consume Iranian oil? And how is Iran going to move forward if and when these sanctions take effect? Uh, you know, the the Trump the Trump administration decision to um, not allow waivers to the sanctions, uh, I believe, is a good one in that it increases pressure on the uh, known number one sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism uh, around the globe, um, and and they're starting to creep into Venezuela. Uh, definitely uh, surrounding uh, Israel with Hezbollah in the north and Hamas in the south and and uh, working its way through Syria and Turkey as well. Uh, so the, the the decision is a good one. Uh, the impact on uh, countries around the world that, that had exceptions or waivers uh, to the sanctions, of course, means uh, it's a bottom line supply and demand. Uh, if you look less supply, um, more demand, uh, prices will go up. Uh, you know, so that's the um, consequence of this uh, foreign policy decision. 
and what Iran's actions will be uh, will be to try to smuggle uh, and will try to do things uh, with China and North Korea and other actors that uh, like to uh, operate in the in the seams of the black market Turkey and and to see if they if Iran can't uh, continue to at least uh, get some foreign exchange going so that they can uh, continue to fund terrorism. Uh, it's it's interesting that when you think about all of the social issues that Iran faces, uh, that uh, a good chunk of that money that was unfrozen by President Obama uh, and his administration, uh, that money went directly to Hamas and Hezbollah. I was just in Israel for the past week, uh, last week, and uh, walked into uh, tunnels dug by uh, Hamas uh, terrorists and uh, Hezbollah terrorists in the um, Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, respectively. And uh, there are many tunnels that uh, since in the last three years have been have been dug with new excavating equipment and that kind of thing that uh, the organizations have been able to fund uh, with uh, this money from the Iran deal. So uh, shutting it down uh, is, is a good thing. Uh, our number one ally in the region, uh, Israel, uh, is uh, reaping some benefit now of, of the new sanctions uh, because uh, Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, all see the threat that Iran poses, and and they have um, an alliance. Israel has an alliance with these countries that is not uh, publicized, but it's certainly one that is there that has grown in the last few years um, out of a necessity because of the cash infusion that Iran got and. Uh, as as we think about what their next steps are, other than black market trading, uh, I would think that uh, challenging the Straits of Hormuz um, uh, would be something that they they may try. They've done it in the past uh, when when uh, we get a carrier strike group in there, uh, it, it doesn't amount to a whole lot uh, uh, because if uh, we the U.S. Navy can uh, put them back on their heels pretty quickly, but that doesn't mean they won't try to do that and challenge merchant ships and, and challenge the, the straits there, which is the most narrow point coming out of the Persian Gulf. General, do we not see some risk, though, of pushing now countries like Turkey and China away from us? You know, we're in the middle of trying to negotiate a trade deal with China. Shutting them off from the waiver would seem to hurt those potential negotiations. And Turkey already seems to be pulling away from us, pulling away from NATO. Could this hasten that at all? Yeah, you know, Peter, I, I think that's a, that's a fair point. It's one, though, I think in the calculus of doing diplomatic r relations, um, you, you have to pick the greater good or the lesser evil, um, however, however we want to look at it. And uh, bringing Iran to its heels is is a uh, better option than um, you know a hiccup in a, in the trade negotiations and and they, and it could be particularly with China it could be a sticking point and it's something that uh, they're going to have to work through um, similarly with Turkey uh, I think this administration um, is is right 
rightfully going after um, Iran to um, try to uh, a stabilize Israel and b um, shut down as much um, uh, of its terrorist funding around the world. Uh, because one thing's for sure, it's, it's um, Iran does very little um, infrastructure and social um, welfare, looking out for its people or development, uh, and does a lot of trying to destroy Israel. And so any, you know, 80 cents on a dollar going into Iran is going to fund terrorism. So that. You know, from my point of view, the the greater good here is to try to shut down um, Iran. Sir, can you discuss the more technical aspects of Iran's threat to shut down the Straits of Hormuz? How would they go about doing that? Importantly, what is the United States' reaction if they continue with these threats? We've seen some increased naval presence in the Mediterranean. Do you see that as posturing in response to Iran's threats to shut down the Straits? Yeah, I, I do. I think Iran is provocative, and I think um, um, you know we've we've given them a, a one-two-three punch with uh, the cancellation of the deal, the imposition of sanctions, and then the tightening of sanctions. Um, and so I, I think uh, just from a regional uh, standpoint, uh, they realize that they they have to at least flex their muscle. And let's face it, Iran is. Uh, all, all but owns Iraq now, um, and they've got uh, significant forces in Syria. Uh, the only thing preventing a land bridge through Syria um, from Iran is the the, the Kurds and and uh, the American forces over there. Um, and and so when when you think about uh, what what uh, Iran's uh, sort of dilemma is here, they've quietly become the regional uh, hegemonic power there uh, because Iran, Iraq is really just a proxy for Iran with its Shia government now. And so as they think about positioning to do their number one foreign policy goal, which is to destroy Israel, uh, they've got uh, significant forces in the Hamas in the south, significant forces with Hezbollah in Lebanon uh, uh, along the Golan Heights and Galilee. And and then, of course, there's uh, funding for the Palestinians uh, along the West Bank. And so they, uh, Iran has to do a calculation of, do they continue to fly under the radar as much as, as they could? Uh, they certainly did that under the Obama administration, and now, um, you know, they've, they've kind of got their set uh, and prepared with, you know, thousands and thousands of rockets to, ready to attack Israel, um, as well as tunnels they've dug, um, many of which have been found. There's no way to tell if you found them all. And then whether or not they pivot into the Straits of Hormuz and the um, Persian Gulf, and and uh, you know try to be a bee in the bonnet of of the uh, oil flow coming out of there uh, that could raise awareness to their strength throughout the region uh, worldwide and and that's the real question that I think Iran is 
is is uh, you know thinking about right now is hey we've got it pretty good we've been able to get all this money and get our set militarily throughout the Middle East uh, we're leaning forward uh, just about everywhere we want to on um, Israel we know we've got an alliance now forming against us um, how much do we turn around and look the other way now and and in the other direction, not the other way, but in the other direction, and look at the Persian Gulf and and try to take on what we know is a losing battle there uh, with regard to uh, shutting down the the straits. And, and so I I think there's some uh, brinksmanship that they'll go through, but at the end of the day, I think that they prefer their posture and being able to attack and destroy Israel, which is their goal, uh, versus being uh, sort of a, a disruptor in the Persian Gulf, a fight that they've tried many times before in the past, and, and they've had some Pyrrhic victories by capturing Navy sailor, U.S. Navy sailors um, uh, and you know getting a pallet of cash for that and, and so forth. But um, at the end of the day, I, I think they will, will choose their strategic positioning in the region over uh, picking a fight they know they can't win. General, is there any chance that they escalate their cyber activities? You know, we talk a lot about cyber here, and Iran shows up as a state-sponsored cyber entity quite often. Is that maybe a way that they could retaliate through cyber attacks or increasing cyber attacks? Or is that something they might want to avoid for now? No, I think, Peter, you've got a good point there. I, I definitely think in the cyber domain of warfare will will stay consistent or ramp up uh, as they look at how they apply their own elements of national power. Um, diplomacy, they're not very good at. Uh, they choose not to be diplomatic. Um, information, which, you know, includes um, the cyber domain, uh, they're they're very good at. Uh, and then the military, they're, they're very strong at and economic. Uh, they're getting squeezed pretty hard. They have no, uh, the only economic power they have is what the money that we gave them and unfroze for them that they're now leveraging militarily. So, uh, I, I think the cyber domain is one that we can expect to see disruption and, and potentially even within the Persian Gulf of ships. Uh, you know, I, I just got back from Israel and I've, I've, I've had my, um, you know, Mac uh, cleaned up uh, because I know I know what goes on over there. And, uh, you know, I, I made the mistake of taking my, my computer. So um, it, it is a pretty um, dense cyber uh, warfare domain over there. And, and everything and anything is suspect to be an attack. Uh, by, you know, any number of countries. So I, I think that uh, that's an excellent point in that Iran will, uh, not, on, not only in, in that region, but wherever they have um, agents or, or operators, uh, the ability to um, impact U.S. information operations uh, and, and coalition information operations, they'll, they'll certainly do so. Are we as well prepared to combat them on the cyber front? Because it sounds like from what you said, it's highly unlikely that they really go after the Strait of Hormuz. And if they do, it would be unlikely to be anything more than a Pyrrhic victory. Will we be able to retaliate and 
stop them on cyber or how far would we take it if they do that? Or is that kind of an unknown right now? Well, it's something we don't do a lot of talking about. Uh, one of the things that uh, we, the U.S., are pretty decent at is defensive cyber, uh, protecting our systems. Uh, offensive cyber is, you know, a policy debate first and foremost, whether or not that's something that as a nation um, that we want to do, choose to do, um, think is the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, and that, that includes all the way down to sort of the unclass um, uh, use of social media to try to do influence operations and so forth, all the way up to highly sophisticated uh, directed uh, energy types of attacks uh, and, and everything in between. And, and so uh, we can defend against those things pretty well. And how much we can counterattack in that domain is uh, pretty highly classified. General Tata, one other question we had was, what repercussions could you see taken by countries like Syria or Turkey or Russia in support of Iran that might hurt the United States longer term? The connection between Iran, uh, Turkey, and Russia is one that sort of centers around Syria. Uh, Syria is a basket case right now. It's had a massive brain drain of any kind of uh, talent that it had from a human capital standpoint from Damascus into Western Europe for the most part. And, and now it's Assad, his Alawite regime. Uh, the Alawites are a form of Shia. Uh, that connects them to Iran. Uh, Iran, um, likes, uh, Assad because he gives, they, Assad gives Iran access, uh, to, uh, the Golan Heights and, and uh, Lebanon and, and, you know, Hezbollah is an extension of, of Iran. And, and so all of that is um, a seen as a portal to achieve their number one strategic aim of destroying in, uh, Israel. Uh, the connective tissue with Russia is that, uh, Russia needs, wants a Mediterranean warm water port, um, in Syria. And so they've, they've got that. They've got the, uh, air defense that they provide for Syria. And, uh, they, they turn somewhat of a blind eye to Iran's machinations, uh, and with Hezbollah, uh, Russia's strategic aims are very different. They don't uh, necessarily have a bone to pick with Israel and in some cases are somewhat supportive. Um, and, and so that it is purely realist politics. Uh, Russia's aim is to have a warm water port, uh, and, and a place to launch some fighter jets around the, uh, you know, NATO southern flank. Uh, and, um, Iran wants to be uh, in on top on the northern flank of of Israel, uh, Turkey, their connective tissue is simply because they're there. Uh, Erdogan and and his uh, government is is uh, you know lucky to get out of its own way. Uh, they've got Kurds in the uh, southeast 
of the country. Uh, they've got uh, the ISIS that had been fighting along the border. Uh, they had uh, millions of migrants come through there. They still have millions of migrants in Turkey. They threaten the EU to open the floodgates every now and then, uh, you know, in, into the sort of the uh, southeast part of uh, Europe and, and flow into Western Europe. And, and so Turkey is a member of NATO. They try to be our friend. They try to be Russia's friend. They try to be Iran's friend. None of that works. And Turkey's just being used uh, in large part for its strategic positioning uh, between uh, Southwest Asia and Europe. Um, so that that's sort of my my read of that that geopolitical landscape. Thank you so much for listening today. As mentioned before, please reach out if you have any questions. You can email us at info at academysecurities.com. As geopolitical concerns like Iran continue to affect the global economy and capital markets, Academy is standing by to provide clarity and unique perspective from our experts. This is your host, Andrew Robinson. I really appreciate you giving us the time today and look forward to sharing more with you again soon.